0: Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June twenty second, twenty twenty one, and it is my pleasure to have with me today my friend Jessica Montel, who is the head of the Israeli NGO Hamoked. Jessica, as I said, she's the executive director of Hamoked, the Center for the Defense of the Individual. She has been a leading figure in Israeli civil society for two decades. And frankly, she has been one of my you know, lighthouses in learning these issues. Uh, for 13 years, she, is headed, she headed B'Tselem, um, the human rights organization she left in 2014 and was the founding director of another organization called CISO, Save Israel, Stop the Occupation. And in 2011, she was selected by Haaretz as quote, one of the year's 10 most influential Anglo immigrants. Um, she is a frequent commentator, frequent speaker, frequent writer, and truly one of the most expert people when it comes to international law, human rights, Israel, the occupation, and all of those wonderful things. You can follow her at, at Jessica Montel on Twitter, and you can check out the organization at www.hamoked.org. Www.hamoked, dorg So with that, we're going to get right into it. Jessica, so... Collective punishment, which is what we're here to talk about today. Collective punishment is a perennial topic uh, for those of us who follow um, Israel's practices vis-a-vis the Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem. Um, It always has been an issue and there are many uh, facets to these practices. Today we're gonna focus on one specific element of collective punishment and that is the demolition of homes, of families, of people who are arrested or convicted of terrorism. And the reason we're talking about this today is the case of the Shalabi family from Turmosaia in the West Bank. So um, as we're going, we will have a link uh, posted with this podcast to an article from the Associated Press, which covers a lot of this. Um, Hamilket is representing the family. So Jessica, if you want to just take some time and tell us this story, because it's almost as if, you know, you wanted to create an encyclopedia entry for all of the problems with collective punishment and and home demolitions, it's like this would be the definition that they would create and put in into the dictionary of the Encyclopedia. So go
1: ahead. Yes, thank you for having me and for addressing this really important issue. So the story of this family and this legal case starts when uh, the husband of the family uh, is suspected of perpetrating a drive-by shooting in the West Bank at the beginning of May, and uh, an Israeli was killed and two others were injured. So he has been arrested, charged, he's on trial. But then um, the military has issued a demolition order for the family home in Tormos Aya. It's a two-story big family home. And this is because it's a It's a standard practice basically anytime a Palestinian kills uh, an Israeli to not only criminally punish the perpetrator but to demolish the family's home. So in this case, it's a very unique situation because um, because the the perpetrator, is not even living in that house. He spends most of his time in the United States and he comes home only one month year back to the West Bank. So the person living in that house is Sana Shalabi and her three children uh, who ha- are not suspected of even knowing about much less supporting or um, taking any part in this attack. And there's another, um, you know, that that makes the demolition from a legal perspective even uh, more ridiculous is that um, the perpetrator Muntasar Shalabi Uh, Also suffered from mental illness, um, was taking antipsychotic drugs, had been treated by a psychiatrist, was institutionalized previously. So the idea that, um, you know, not only he's responsible for his actions, but that somehow he is the case that you can uh, uh, demolish the whole family's house um, in order to... the, The rationalization for these demolitions is that it's going to deter... Uh, other people from carrying out these attacks, right? It's a it's a deterrent. You are intentionally harming innocent people in order to deter other people from carrying out these attacks. We can talk a little bit about, you know, whether it's actually effective, whether it's justified, even it's not effective. But certainly in this case where he doesn't even live there and he has mental illness, it seems like, uh, you know, a crazy case. And I would add the third important biographical details that the whole family are U.S. citizens, so we're talking about a U.S. citizen, uh, Sana Shalabi and her three children that live in that house. You know, also relevant when you think about U.S. policy toward Israel, the U.S. State Department is opposed in general to these home demolitions. You know, the question is whether they would act. You know, go beyond that sort of bland statement of opposition to actually take measures to ensure that a US citizen and her three American children don't lose their home because of this policy. So,
0: so thank you. I wanna circle back to the American part um, in a bit, but just to dig in a little bit. So, you're, so effectively, this is a case where you have the alleged perpetrator, who by the way, has not yet been convicted. It's still alleged. He hasn't been tried or convicted yet. The alleged perpetrator doesn't live in the home. He lives in the United States. He's effectively estranged from his wife and kids he has mental illness and almost no contact. And so they're effectively alleging that either there is some guilt by association, which is in, difficult to see here, or that somehow he will it will send a message to him and people like him by punishing people who are at this great distance. So just to get that right, right there.
1: That's right, there's no allegation that they are in any way involved. It is an, an intentional policy of harming innocent people, so that other people will see that and uh, not engage in attacks because they don't want, you know, theoretically, they're not gonna take part in attacks so that their own family members won't be similarly harmed. Okay,
0: so let's pull the camera back from the Chalamis for a second and talk about collective punishment as a concept, because collective punishment isn't just a term of art used by human rights organizations, right? It, it actually has legal meaning um, under international law. And, and in the Israeli context, there's a very specific understanding of what it does or doesn't mean. Can you talk about why and how Israel has come to adopt quite openly a policy of collective punishment, punishing people, as you said, where there's, there isn't even a suspicion or an implied accusation that the people who will suffer from this act are the ones who did anything illegal, right? Um, I mean, we have cases where the people who, whose home, at the, you have someone who was killed in the, say killed in the act of committing an act of terror, and then his family is punished after his death by demolishing his home. That isn't about punishing them for terrorism. So how, how did this come about? How did it become legal, accepted legally in Israel? And, and how, does it, how does it line up against international law and international practice?
1: So you're right that there are a lot of uh, policies uh, that we uh, invoke this term collective punishment. To my mind, this is the most um, you know blatant policy again of willfully harming innocent people. And the power to use these home demolitions is a legacy that we inherited from the British mandate. It's a it's an emergency order from pre-state uh, Palestine, where the British use this policy. It's called the uh, Regulation 119. Um, so it comes, you know, it was it was in, enacted before, you know, we had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, you know, this whole system of human rights law. But I think it's not, the, the principle against collective punishment is not complicated. You have in the fourth Geneva Convention, a principle that is in every legal system, you know, going back to the Bible that says you don't punish people for something that they have not done. So that that's the framing of it, that explicit prohibition on collective punishment in the fourth Geneva Convention. But it's just obvious that you don't, you know, harm, uh, punish people for even if they're related to the criminal or, you know, have some other affiliation with the criminal. Each of us is responsible for our own actions. We are held accountable for our own actions, not for actions of other people. That's, you know, I think common sense entrenched in every legal system and also in the Fourth Geneva Convention. You have a second principle in the Fourth Geneva Convention that prohibits the occupying power Israel from demolishing property in general. Uh, You know, and we have a lot of different kinds of home demolitions um, that we are Uh, criticizing Israel for because they violate that principle, including this one. So those are the two relevant provisions in uh, international humanitarian law, which is governing occupied territory like the situation in the West Bank. Now, you have had uh, many legal challenges to this in the Israeli system. And the current uh, situation is, you know, we have gone to the high court 75 times since 2014, when the policy was renewed, we succeeded in having a moratorium for about 10 years on this policy, um, partly because the military itself raised questions about whether or not it was even effective and suggested that in fact, it achieves the opposite. It's in fact, encouraging people, it's a source of Uh, antagonism to the military and and a trigger for people wanting to attack Israelis. But anyway, the policy was renewed in 2014. Since that time, we've petitioned the high court 75 times and we are challenging, you know, the whole policy as collective punishment. There is no justification. It's illegal, both according to Israeli law and international law and these common principles of justice. Uh, and we have had an impossible time in the high court getting a substantive ruling. So we've won some cases. I think it's eight cases that we succeeded in canceling demolition orders, but it's always on the specifics of the individual case. Too much time has passed. Uh, they didn't own the house. They were just renting the house. I mean, all sorts of technicalities. One case of that the perpetrator had mental illness was schizophrenic and then the demolition order was canceled. Um, but the court has said, we're not gonna get into the principle of whether regulation 119 is legal. I mean, they're, what they're saying is there is a precedent because we've been doing it for so long and we've had so many cases to the court, there's no point in reopening, but you know, really there has never been a substantive discussion and of course, many things have happened, You know, Israel joining the International Criminal Court, uh, Palestine joining the International Criminal Court, you now have an open investigation uh, where this would certainly be relevant in terms of considering crimes being committed uh, in the territory of Palestine. Uh, and still the court is not willing to engage with the legality as a whole. So all we are left with is arguing the specifics of the case that uh, Muntasar Shalabi didn't live in the house, as I said, that he has mental illness, all of those things that, uh, you know, we hope would um, save this house. I mean, there is a hope that one case and another case and another case sets some sort of precedent. You can't have a blank check to be demolishing houses. But uh, so far we have been unsuccessful in having the international legal discussion that I think is really crucial.
0: It, it's interesting, you, you brought up in that, and thank you for that. Um, you know, your answer includes a lot of little, you just sort of, the things that are actually quite important that people may not know, like the fact that 53 years into the occupation, Israel is still using emergency regulations, emergency regulations inherited from the British for the temporary occupation that's 53 years long. Um, and it also underscores something that I think has been getting more attention as we've had this discussion of the word apartheid, which is that you have different sets of laws and rules applying to different people, emergency regulations uh, to govern Palestinians in the West Bank side by side by settlers who live with all the rights and and, and protections of Israeli law. Um, you know, what you said about the, this coming up in court and, and, and experts saying it's it's not effective as a deterrent. Has always been striking to me because that's the one argument in favor of doing this: is that it's a deterrent. Whether it's legal, whether it's moral, whether it's right, it's, it's sort of like you know that you've got that terrible choice. If we have to, you know, if we have to make one person suffer so a hundred people don't suffer, you know, that kind of moral um, right and that doesn't hold up. One very simple question I have to ask you, which I thought of, is you know we're constantly hearing from defenders of status quo occupation, Israel policies that, you know, these damn human rights groups, they want to hold Israel to a different standard, a higher standard than the rest of the world. Is there any other democracy that has rule of law that you know of, that has a policy of collective punishment of civilians um, as part of their legal system? Because I don't, I can't think of any country in the world where if my boyfriend commits a crime, they can come and demolish my house, my right.
1: Yeah. Right. I think that's right. I, I also cannot think. And, you know, Israel is very unique in that uh, you have atrocities being committed around the world by autocratic dictatorships uh, with no legal basis. Israel, everything is legal, quote unquote, legal. There are regulations, there are policies, there are procedures for things that are blatantly illegal. But, uh, um, you know, I remember the amnesty researcher who came here in the 80s that says, you know, most countries are torturing, but nobody's going to admit it. But Israel, you know, there was a whole legal framework to be governing even something as uh, uh, completely illegitimate as torture. Of course, they had other euphemisms for it. But, uh, you know, the basic principle that things that are blatantly illegal are being conducted according to. A legal system and you have legal advisors that come before the high court and present and the high court rules on it and says yes in this case it's okay so that is a really um you know crazy situation of things that are blatantly wrong being conducted with this cloak of legality
0: and this is i remember when i first came to jerusalem in the 90s and i was talking to a human rights um uh, monitor activist who is explaining to me the difference between rule of law and rule by law. And the idea that you can make laws to make anything legal but that isn't rule of law. I mean, when the laws are being written to implement and support what a governing body wants to do against a minority population, then it's, it's a different thing entirely. The, so let's talk a little bit more about the cases. You, you mentioned that the high court has been um, reluctant to weigh in on the principle. And this is something that I think is, is a common theme um, with cases that are brought before the High Court of Justice in Israel, challenging the various practices that uphold occupation, right? You can, you can whittle away on the margins, you can get technical rulings, you can you know, get the court basically saying to the Israeli government, you know you know I don't think you can defend this, do something else so that we don't have to rule against you, that kind of thing. Why do you think the Supreme Court is so reluctant to weigh in, even when you have an example, again, this feels like a textbook example that you could bring before the court to say, if you can't support this, then you have to recognize that the underlying practice is the problem. It isn't the technicalities. we put it all together in a simple package here that shows why this is indefensible. You've done this, you've worked with the Supreme Court on these things for years. Why do you think this is so difficult for the court to weigh in on even when the rulings are pretty clear, right?
1: Yes, uh, first we have to uh, recognize that the court has gotten increasingly hostile to human rights over the years, that you have uh, judicial appointments primarily under Ayelet Chekev when she was justice minister, um, You know, very right-wing ultra-nationalist settler judges. That has changed uh, the composition of the court a bit and the willingness to be engaging in these issues. I mean, it was never great before. Uh, I mean, I think you have a lot of different uh, dynamics going on. Number one, so many things are justified in the name of security. Uh, It's very difficult to expect the court to um, you know, step in and stop practices that are supposed to be keeping us safe. And and in every court hearing on these cases, you have bereaved families that ask to address the court, even though they're not supposed to be a party to the proceedings, right? It's not supposed to be vengeance for the death of their loved one. It's something completely different, theoretically. But here you see that there's, uh, you know, this element also of the, the vengeance um and um well it's it is rare you know let's say in the united states it's very difficult to get to the supreme court with a case so on the one hand the israeli high court is very open right everything every case you file they have to hear it uh and also cases of palestinians in occupied territory things that are taking place you know outside the state of Israel, um, so, and and yet, when it comes to, as you said, actually intervening, it's extremely rare that that the court is going to um, halt abusive, illegal policies. Uh, you know, we we win a majority of our cases, but as you said, either it's the individual case or the state itself capitulates before you get a ruling. That that you know by. Asking for more information, by raising the challenges, by conducting the discussion, it is more often the case that the state will change its policies before the high court ruling. When we get a high court ruling on, you know, big principled issues, more often than not, we lose. And I think that reflects, uh, you know, uh, Chief Justice Aaron Barak said, we uh, live in this society. We are judging from within the society that we live in. And then all of the dynamics around uh, Israeli treatment of Palestinians that we have become so used to occupation and what that means in terms of two different legal systems for Jews and for Palestinians. Um, it, they, they, the court just reflects many of those same dynamics rather than being in a position to uh, voice a critique and stop those policies.
0: Yeah I mean it's interesting you know for people who are unaware for years the the supreme court in Israel is the court of first jurisdiction for Palestinians in effect but that's not you know for people who think oh that means that proves that the Israeli system takes the, the grievances of Palestinians so seriously. That's not why it has historically been the court of first jurisdiction. It's been the court of first jurisdiction because it is legally anomalous, to say the least, to have the court system of a sovereign country dealing with cases that are located outside of its sovereign borders. That is such a bizarre situation. And it's worth noting that that under Ayelet Shakit's leadership, that has actually largely been shifted. So the Palestinians are now when they have claims against settlers forced to go through the Jerusalem court system as if they were citizens. So they now are forced to actually contend with all of the layers of Israeli judicial bureaucracy while they n- do not enjoy the rights and benefits of being actual citizens to which the judicial system is accountable. So it's a really, it's anomalous right, that's right. a right. possible way. Um, so being respectful of your time, I know you're really busy and I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. I want you to do that looking ahead thing. Um, I'm first of all curious if you have anything to say about the United States and, their, and and the engagement of the Biden administration. And I don't know if there's engagement that is behind the scenes and quiet. I have to hope there is, I haven't seen anything public. One would think that in a case where you have you know, a family, right, a, a mother and children who are American citizens about under the threat of grievous collective punishment um, that you would have the US weighing in. I, I would note that historically the record, the track record of the US government weighing in on behalf of Palestinians whose lands, whose property, who've been arrested in the West Bank has been extraordinarily weak. Um, and, and this is something I followed for, for many, many years. Do you see engagement coming from the Biden administration? That's the first question. And do you think it can make a difference? And the second question, as this this, this legal case sort of you know, comes to a head with a new government Israel, which in theory has a slightly less um, ideologically right-wing coloration, at least more complex coloration. I, I obviously, uh, Mr. Mr. Bennett is not a lefty by any means, and Nora's is Yair Lapid, but still, that's part of their, their identity. And coming into that role with the Biden administration in Washington, do you think the court is more sensitive to those dynamics? Do you think there is uh, the state of Israel is more ready to maybe um, either walk back this particular case so this family does not suffer or actually examine whether or not they want to be on the list of countries that all the rest of which are not democracies which engage openly in collective punishment of innocent people?
1: So I think you're right. We have, you know, we have two um, two fronts that we're waging this battle. The High Court heard the hearing, uh, heard our case on Thursday. So we're waiting any day now for the judgment. I do not think that the new government or concerns about the Biden administration are going to influence the judges. Although you had representatives of the U.S. embassy and other diplomats in the room, the judges were interested you know, who's who's present in the room, it seemed like we had a little more time and patience to be arguing our case than we normally do. And maybe that's the fact that we had diplomats there. But we're waiting any day now for the ruling. Again, I think our case on its merits is really strong. And maybe um, the high court would stop the demolition. If the high court gives the green light, the government doesn't have to demolish the house. And then I think the Uh, diplomatic battle is crucial. The fact that we have a new government, we have a new foreign minister who says that he wants to rehabilitate relations with the international community, with the US, with the Biden administration. So then it would be crucial that the US government speak out against, the State Department has said that they are opposed to punitive home demolitions, full stop regardless of the fact that it's a US citizen. Uh, You know, a whole family should not lose their house because of the actions of one person. That's the official statement of the State Department. So here is an opportunity, you know, uh, uh, to go beyond that uh, declarative opposition and speak up. And as you said, they are not always willing to go to bat for the rights of their own citizens when you're talking about Palestinians. Um, that are victims of Israeli policy. But I think uh, even if we lose in the high court, or especially if we lose in the high court, then it's crucial that the Biden administration say, we are opposed to this policy and we expect you not to demolish the home of innocent US citizens. And I would think that the new government would be more receptive to that message.
0: So Eilat, I have one more question. You you mentioned the ICC a second ago or a minute ago. How do you see policies like this fitting into the considerations of what what Israel is most concerned um, will be investigated by the ICC? Um, There's been discussions that even if they don't look at Gaza so much, the, the bigger concern is that they'll look at the settlement enterprise and related policies, which has to include collective punishment, which is, you know, brazen violation of international human rights law. Um, and and here I'm also thinking about the general focus. I mean, Turmosaya, the village that that this house is in, which is a largely Ameri- a village of largely joint Palestinian American citizens, um, is right in the center of an area that is under intense pressure by settlers. Right, we have constant. Um, land being taken, new settler ranches and agricultural, you know, work being done. Jor um, Etkis is tracking this and, and Yeshdin. Um, I mean, this in some ways, whether not about this particular home demolition um, uh, threat, but this this home is sort of at the epicenter of a lot of currents in the West Bank, which correlate to when, when people are saying we need international legal recourse because there's nothing else right that can help the Palestinians. So how do you see this sort of setting up with the ICC case?
1: So I would say two things. First, as you say, nothing can be divorced from the broader context. And this particular case, I mean, it's like a train wreck of human rights violations. So first, the attack where Muntasar Shalabi killed uh, an Israeli civilian. In response to that attack, uh, settlers set up an outpost on uh beta village lands so you have a new illegal settlement outpost uh as a result of the attack now you have uh palestinian protests against the takeover of their land for that outpost uh you know every friday palestinians are being injured and killed in those um protests against the new settlement so i mean as you said it's um uh you know, a whole um, ecosystem of uh, violations of rights. And regarding the ICC, I think there are two questions. One, the first purpose of the ICC is to ensure domestic accountability, or, you know, it's either accountability or and or deterrence. So I would hope that, and of course, Israel is following everything that's happening at the ICC very closely. So uh, it, I would think it would be enough for the ICC to be looking into um, the issue of punitive home demolitions that would send a very strong signal to Israel. And I think it's twofold. What we have said to the high court is in this situation, your legal guidance is needed. Uh, uh, military commanders are issuing demolition orders. Are they criminals? Soldiers are carrying out these demolitions. Are they criminals? So uh, you know, by refusing to deal with the the, the legality of the whole policy, uh, the high court is really um, you know leaving the military sort of um, to fend for themselves in this legal arena. And and so, as I said, I think one is the hope that ICC engagement would be a deterrent to Israel. Um, but if not, I agree with you that, um, you know, some cases are very hard to investigate and to identify who are the suspects and to bring them to trial. And some cases are easy. And, and you know, as you said, settlement expansion, there's no secret. Uh, it's all um, you know, as far as Israel is, you know, by the books, Um, And house demolitions, I think, is also the case. Who signed the order? You know, the name is on the demolition order. And the legal advisor that comes to the High Court of Justice and defends this policy and the judges that give the stamp of approval, um, you know, I would think that all of them would have some, it would give them pause uh, that the ICC is looking into crimes committed in the West Bank.
0: Well, I think we're gonna stop there. This is um, so helpful. Um, I, I suspect we'll want to invite you back again. Well, we will for sure on any number of topics, but as this, as this particular case um, comes to, to some kind of conclusion, um, I wanna thank you, Jessica, so much for joining me today. And thanks for sharing your insights with the foundation and our listeners. Um, lot, lot to look at here I would encourage people to check out the Hummelked website www.hamilkhead.org and also check out the article um, published by the Associated Press the headline is Palestinian Mom Fights to Stave Off Punitive Home Demolition uh, very powerful um, for our listeners thank you for tuning in and I want to remind you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Spotify and SoundCloud that way you don't miss anything we're adding new content much every week and you can also find the podcast and the video for the podcast at www.fmep.org and with that we'll end this i'm laura friedman president of the foundation for middle east peace signing off until the next episode of occupied thoughts thank you